Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan, and I'm Mario Ponzio, and we're back to the quarantine listing. We're not we're not doing a list episode this week. No, I like Can't the idea. Of ba- I like bouncing back and forth. Yeah, especially since the rough cut of last week was what three hours and forty some minutes. It was almost three hours long. Yeah, the original like rough cut wasn't. It? Didn't you say it was like three thirty? No, no, no. It was original. It was. Um, oh, that's with like all the stuff. For it you. was like two fifty three. Yeah, so. And then I cut a half hour of it. I mean, there's a half hour. I mean, I saved all those files, so there's like a half hour of just other stuff. We could put it up. <laughs> if there's we... ever a week where we're not going to record, we'll just put news that's outdated by months probably at that point. News and just things. News and just random word vomit. Mm. Speaking of news, Tom, uh, you mentioned this earlier, but uh, we have a release date for New Mutants. Yeah. yeah, August twenty yeah, eighth, because everything's everything yeah. will be back to normal on the twenty eighth. You know, we were really excited there for a second when we thought that it was just going to go straight to like Disney Plus or Hulu, and you know, I just don't no, see what the, who cares about the this movie. Release. Uh, here's my guess: is that the um, the un the lifting of of all the of all the stay-at-home orders is happening much, much faster than anyone um, thought it was going to. And I think the overall meaning of that is that even if we do get a second wave and we get a spike in, like, every single one of these states that is opening instantaneously, the reaction across the country is going to be like, fuck it, we're going to the fucking movies. And so they're going to need something to watch, which means New Mutants. Maybe that's all there is in August. It'll be the only movie. because... Yeah, the only, the only, well, maybe that and Tenet, because I'm sure like Christopher Nolan would be like, release Tenet. Well, did you read any of that um, um, Robert Pattinson profile in, in GQ? I, I read some of the highlights of it about him refusing to like keep up the physique during shutdown. Like he's like, I'm not going to keep working out like this because it creates unreal expectations on actors. Well, in the movie, the studio is providing all of his meals. And it bought him clothes because he didn't have any clothes. But then there's also this really lengthy... Why do you you not have any clothes? He just didn't bring any clothes with him. Oh, for the production. And then there's also this really lengthy digression where he... Apparently in L.A. before everything started, he was really pitching um, to restaurateurs and things a, a handheld pasta scheme. Like a fast food restaurant that dealt in hand... Like a handheld pasta sandwich type thing. Oh, and he was very not, not and he was they, serious about it. Pasta, pasta, and like sauce in your hand. No, 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 but like a handheld pasta like thing. And he was very serious. You, he talked to lots of people. Have you ever put pasta in be- between like two pieces of sandwich bread with some butter? No, Mario, I've never done that. It's it's really good. What kind of like spaghetti? Yeah, when I was a kid, I used to do that. I used to be like spaghetti with like meat sauce in the middle of two pieces of, like toasted butter. Huh. Uh, toasted with buttered toast, I should say. Toasted I could see butter. some like cut in half raviolis, maybe, or like or or, or could... no lasagna noodles, some stacked, folded and stacked lasagnas. Well, I'm sure that could work too. I'm just telling you what I used to do. Hmm. So Robert Pattinson might be onto something. He might be. But he's, he is a he is a genius. So, well, a new mutants is refusing to move to streaming. Uh, we have two two movies that are moving to streaming. Um, one surprising, one not. That that's surprising. Uh, first HBO Max in August is going to release the new Seth Rogen comedy. 
an American pickle. You hear about this movie? An American pickle. Yeah. I have not so, heard of this uh, movie. Seth Rogen plays a he's gonna play an immigrant worker who's a he works at a pickle factory. Yep. And he accidentally preserves himself. That's awesome. Is uh unpreserved a hundred years later and ha- goes on hijinks with his grandson, also played by Seth Rogen. Amazing. That sounds a lot like the Derek C and Franz movie that's Mark Ruffalo's in now. <laughs> does it does it really? Well, it's Mark Ruffalo plays twins. So there'll be two Seth Rogans and two Mark Ruffalos, both on HBO. Maybe it's going to be like a universe, a twins universe that will eventually lead to the uh, that, that triplets movie with Eddie Murphy, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Danny DeVito we wanted for so long. What if this is just like HBO Max's new thing, all twins movies or variations of do. twins movies? Well, what is more maximum than, is, than identical yep. twins? That's true. That's um, true. The bigger news story uh, in this time of postponement, Disney Plus has decided fuck it and uh, moved up Hamilton from its October 15th, 2021 date to July 3rd. Um, yeah, I don't know what to good make idea. of it. I think it's a good idea. It's a, it's a good idea. I suppose it's a good idea, except for the fact that they paid $75 million for the rights just to release it with, with no marketing attached to it or anything. Just $75 million to release it. And they're not going to be able to recoup any of that, like, money necessarily. Like, in the – like, unless they get, you know, 20 million people to subscribe to, to well, Disney+, Plus, which they might. Um, here's, but, I mean, here's for, my thought. I don't care about that. It's just an, – it's an interesting choice. Here's my thought. I wonder if they're thinking, oh, we might get, like, 2 million new subscribers off of this, right? Yeah. They're going to subscribe off of this, see all the, the Disney classics that are on there, see all the Marvel and Star Wars movies. And just keep it. Yeah. You know? Because I think Disney Plus has that weird value where once you get it, like there's been several times I've looked at um, something like Netflix even. Like we've talked about this before, like Netflix, I thought about dropping it. And I've dropped like gotten Hulu before and dropped it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, all these other streaming services. I've never thought that with Disney Plus because I'm always like, you know, the urge might strike me to watch The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, no, I mean, we've it's we've kind of enjoyed it. Um, yeah, you can just kind of go to it and watch something that you've seen like a whole bunch of times, but you, it's all usually stuff. I mean, which is unfortunate to say about Disney. It's usually of like a certain quality. So you don't really mind watching it. Like we didn't, I didn't mind having Timmy failure on in the house four times. That did not, that did not bug me. I wonder if they're banking on the fact that, you know, maybe they only get two, three million people off of this, but then those two, three million people just don't go away. Well, I just, the other thing I assume comes 30 to 60 million months of, seven dollars the other thing i assume million dollars right there you know? yeah is that uh, they haven't said anything about in the heights but in the heights was supposed to open the week before i have to imagine they're moving in the heights they've already moved in the heights to uh next year next oh year. did they like a, i didn't i didn't know i didn't yeah. see that they did that um so yeah i imagine they just uh, I believe, have i believe it's i believe it's next summer let me check that for sure but i believe in the heights was moved to um summer 22 i know it was moved i believe as moved to summer uh 2020 so i mean the other possibility is that anthony ramos and lin-manuel Mar- summer 2020 <laughs> anthony ramos and lin-manuel miranda have something in their contracts with disney where they have to release a movie with them you know in it this year or they both get like yeah i got 500 million dollars or something yeah. so you never know or maybe they just like explode into like dust yeah um that's better finish it uh well we're not gonna 
finish it, but because uh, like the last piece of news will kind of connect into the movie we're going to talk about this week. But uh, some sad news. We mentioned this during your Rashomon episode, and I said how I was um, shocked that uh, Machiko Akayu, the the wife, the samurai's wife, was still alive. Oh yeah. Uh, today she she finally or yesterday she uh she passed away at ninety five. Good run for her. Natural causes or coronavirus? Just just heart failure. I just you know what Which I think. Like everybody dies of heart failure. I know, but it's just one of these things where, like, you know, when little Richard dies, you're just like, oh, is it, is it coronavirus? Does that make it worse? Does that make it better? Does that make it more sad? No, it sucks either way. It's just like the first thing that comes to your head. I mean, I guess dying in your sleep is better than dying of coronavirus. Given yeah, it's way better. Dab with coronavirus. Speaking of which, I, today I am drinking. If you can see this, broken Steve Austin's Steve Austin's Broken Skull IPA. Steve Austin, like the wrestler? Yeah. Is it's, it good? It's not. It's not. It's not good. <laughs> Sweet. It tastes. It has like a lingering taste of bubblegum, which is weird. Ugh. I don't. I don't understand why. Was it just a regular uh, IPA? Yeah, it's supposed to be. That's disgusting, Mario. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Um, lastly, and this kind of moves into the first film we're going to be talking about today. Uh, it is reported that in July, um, Wong Kar Wai is going to start filming the finale or the next film. It is a tet- tetralogy, as it were, of uh, Blossoms. You know, the In the Mood for Love, um, 2049, and Days of Being Wild series of movies. And uh, we're, should be getting Blossoms by next year. It should be good for people that really love those movies. It should be. Um, let's just assume that, you know, things go into production when they're supposed to and um yeah but that is a good that's a, when they when they should not when they not when they're supposed no when they're supposed to when they should. should yeah um but yeah like you said that's a good segue because we are doing we're back to our bfi list this week and uh this week that movie is number 24 um i don't know it's what be the first of two movies we're talking about first of two movies and the other one's on the top 100 top two is it top 100 i think i thought like you said it was 100 top 200 it doesn't matter um um it is uh, Wong Kai Wai's. Is twenty four on the critics list? Where, do you know where it's on the director's list? I do not know. No. Sixty uh, seventh on the director's list. One and of Paul Schrader's top ten films. There you go. That says everything you need to know, there, folks. I don't even think we need to do the rest of this podcast. Yeah. Well, <laughs> see you guys next week. I would just to digress, like very briefly. It would be awesome if that was our podcast, like. Paul Schrader says one of his – we just like scour the internet for Paul Schrader saying things about movies and we just say like, Paul Schrader said this about this movie. Sounds good. We'll see you next week. Um, the movie that Paul Schrader really likes is In the Mood for Love. Uh, the year is 1962. It is uh, Hong Kong. Uh, Mr. Chow and his wife and Ms. Mrs. Chan and her husband have moved into this uh, this apartment building. They are neighbors. Um, and over uh, a period of time, their um, hus- their their husband and respective husbands and wives uh, begin to have an affair with each other. And um, it is happens 
clandestinely at first and then less clandestinely to the point where Mrs. Chen goes over to to knock on the door, uh, knowing that her husband is inside. And then, um, you know, which we only find out when when Mrs. Chow goes back into the house and she says, you know, it was your wife. Um, They move or abscond with each other to Japan, where, where, where Mr. Chan seems to do a lot of work. Um, and they begin this relationship, which starts with them trying to reenact the, the situations in which their, their, their spouses may have, have fallen in love with each other, and they end up falling in love with each other. Um, the end of the movie skips ahead several years um, as that love continues that that love they feel for each other continues to 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 be unrequited um and that's that's kind of it i mean there's not a whole hell of a lot else to say like from a plot wise here you can just i mean you could i could go through and describe scenes i can go through and and talk about all the times they go to the same um noodle place in the alley or the times that it rained or the times that it didn't rain or the times where there was red or the times where there wasn't red or any other things um but all that stuff is really kind of immaterial to like what the what the plot of the movie is. That's the plot. It's very simple. These two people fall in love and they don't really do anything about it. They're just kind of in love at each other. Um, in the sight and sound, the little blurb that they list here for uh, In the Mood for Love, they say, In the Mood for Love is built on rapture, ecstasy, and the suffering it entails on wheels. I don't know what that means. Blasting away all the conventions of melodrama, Wong comes up with a fiction of emotions powered by music that leaves everyone else in the dust for fluidity, color, editing, music, and unforgettable romance. This is it. Um, I think one of the problems that I don't, I don't know. You'd have to tell me, you'd have to tell me. I actually loved this movie like a lot. And I was kind of bummed that I didn't see it before we made our best of the, of the 21st century list um this and in the turin horse are the two movies that i would have put on my list had i seen them before we did our list um i think there's a lot of things in here that i think are sneaky um maybe not even all that sneaky i just think there you know the way that he uses music the repetition of certain things so yumeji's um the theme that kind of plays throughout this thing it's called yumeji's theme the nat king cole songs he just kind of keeps going back to this it almost has like a sliding doors quality to it you know what i mean like every single moment of this film and these people's lives could have been lived a hundred times before you know what i mean and we just happen to see this one there is that one kind of the twist scene where they're the act of kind of reenacting the relationship between their husband, their, their, their spouses kind of breaks. And then they realize that this is stupid and we have feelings for each other. And it's not just, it's not a game anymore. There's actual real emotions attached to it. That scene does have like a sliding doors quality because it happens like literally two times in a row. Um, just like with different endings, but it almost it's and part of this, I think is because I just finished reading Paul Oster's city of glass again is that there's just the two people there's it almost seems like there's two people or two couples and they both go in different directions and we get to see one and maybe maybe the other one's happening like totally different i don't know and that's that's not the point of the movie it's just kind of where my mind gets to um but it makes this it makes this thing i don't know i think one of the problems that people have with this movie 
maybe now and maybe that's one of the problems that you have with this movie and this is what I was going to say before is that people talk about this movie in terms of like rapture and like ecstasy and like some of it someone in I forget which review it was called it like a sex farce and I was like what 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 is a sex farce for one I would love well, to know what a sex farce is I think it was like an un, uncapable I can't remember what review this was but in un, uncapable hands mm. it would have been nothing but like a film student sex farce yeah and I'm like what what is a sex farce are some reviews about the color palette choices going from like drab to more colorful, but opening up with the red elicits like an eroticism. And I'm like, yeah, I think that, I think that, I think the idea of eroticism here is too, um, it's not as prevalent as, as the reviews made it seem like it was when going into it, all the reading I did before I watched it, I was kind of expecting this, like a, an, an almost hot movie and this really isn't that it's i find it like very like intellectually stimulating more than i find it like um you know erotic in in, in any way whatsoever i mean there's things about it but i also think that those things i think some of the co- those colors and the way the music is used in like the costume design specifically um has more of a uh, like um an intellectual subversiveness than it does um, just kind of like a pure eroticism. And I was kind of, I was getting really into that stuff. It's, it's, it's societally uh, provocative, I would say, Um, you know, it's, it's less more about the the sexual inclinations they have towards one another or an erotic inclination they have towards one another, but, you know, more the sense of, of companionship they have in the face of, you know, a, a really dour, um, regressive society, uh, and that's what's 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 interesting in it. It mm-hmm. is more this championing championing of uh, uh, true feelings in the face of a society that is constantly holding a mirror in front of you and demanding of you what you should and should not be. You know, like they can't visit each other too often. And when Mrs. Chow, uh, not Chow, Mrs. Um. The, the landlady um sends sensui or whatever her name is mrs soon soon yeah uh you know kind of reprimands um mrs chan just about like her going out alone too often yeah. and telling her husband to be home more often like these are weird societal rules that they need to follow well and she becomes almost certain- like yeah she becomes almost like a greek chorus in the fact that she's like speaking for that society They've just yeah, exactly. nominated this one lady to just kind of be like, tell you things that she's we all want to say. Ma- she's going to play Mahjong and she's going to be a real bitch. Um, <sighs> Two day Mahjong. That's just crazy. I'm going to have to learn that. <laughs> I'm playing, I'm playing Yakuza Zero and apparently Mahjong plays a pretty big role in the side story. So uh, Mr. Ku is in, Mr. Ku is in rough Mahjong. shape at the, end of that, at the end of that Mahjong game, Mario. Yeah. Um, so I. I I, re- I appreciate this film on um, a palette scale, as it were. Uh, it's it's a really well done film. I noticed from a costume design point of view, mm-hmm. and there's like a lot of a lot of work being done in that costume design. I do see that kind of like drower, dower, I should say, sort of palette um, early on. Kind of you know the grays or the very stuff stuffy browns in their suits and uh, in their her dresses, kind of flourishing more into like florals or you know more blues and, and lighter pastel colors and that's 
fascinating to me. And I, I always, I always appreciate that when there's like a real control of that. Beyond that though, this gets the, the worst possible Mario review of fine. <laughs> I find it just fine. I don't find it particularly um, stunning. I, I don't find it to be, to be an intellectual tour de force that people or, or an emotional um, or sensual tour de force that people seem to want to say it is. And I, I sp speculate if I had seen this movie blindly without knowing the kind of the rapturous feelings that people have for it, I would have a little stronger of an appreciation in, in saying it was like one of the best films of its year, possibly. Um, I don't know if I said that, but, but one of the better films of its year and saying it's a strong contender for its like genre. Uh, that kind of, I don't even think I'd say that. Um, well, here, I mean, here's, I, I just, I hesitate finding anything in this film, you know, like, like people, really want to capture into like its tightness early on like the tightness sure but the tightness the and how but like and eventually kind of like panning out and get in the finale when well, he's the, in uh right Phuket, uh that's kind of like long shots yeah the, and people are just just really focused on this i'm like yeah fucking end it doesn't matter like it doesn't do anything it see, feels it's, tight and it looks mm. good and event but the long shots like that freedom or whatnot he has at the end when he kind of has that whispers the secrets i guess maybe that's what it's going for mm -hmm. it doesn't do anything it doesn't feel any different it doesn't have this moment of like awe it just see i disagree it's... with you i disagree i think it does and but i think the problem is that i think a lot of i think a lot of the the literature on this focuses too heavily on these tr on these kind of tropes that the movie seems to establish for itself so they're like oh it's close in the beginning and then it's open at the end i hate to break it to those people but it's literally close for the whole fucking movie and it's it doesn't like gradually open itself up. It is no, no, closed, no, no, no. and then it is, and then it is open. I found, and that's a, and so we're gonna I, we're gonna compare this movie today, folks. And we didn't like necessarily mean to do that. It's just kind of what happened today, um, or last Mario it happened Mario last night, of, and then it happened, and then this morning. Mario was really bored after watching this, and I, I don't know. I find it I find this boring, but I hate the call. Because I think that's the worst thing you could say about a movie, but I thought I found it really just kind of dull. Mm. Um, not in the sense of I, I don't. I think it's a well-crafted piece of film, but it doesn't speak to what I'm looking for. And so I was looking for something, and I stumbled upon that, not realizing it was made by the director. The second film we'll talk about, and I was like, "Fuck it!" I never think I couldn't put these two together. And I watched. It, I was like, "Oh, wow." Well, um, just kidding. It's weird. But, um, I don't, I don't know, because I kind of, I'm getting the opposite, I had the, like, the total opposite impression in that I found it, like, a very, like, uh, like a, not, that's the thing, I, I don't want to speak in the language of the, of, of the reviews, because I think they're wrong, it's not like an emotionally ravishing movie, but I think it's an emotionally um, hypnotic movie, if you give yourself over to it, you can kind, you, you just kind of, you can, you know the passage of time and things like that the slow mo the really the, the odd use of slow motion in this the way that the movie seems to kind of establish for itself um and a, a legacy for itself so the movie that I kept coming back to when I was watching this was um far from heaven not so much because this remind it looks like you know far from heaven i don't think that um one car wise is Another and, movie and I'm not 
not in love with. And, Todd, and that's the thing. I'm not necessarily in love with it either. Um, and not that the two directors are the same or anything like that. But, but Far From Heaven kind of works on the idea that it's like supposed to be a Douglas Sirk movie. You know what I mean? So it has this two – it has two meta narratives kind of working simultaneously. You know, uh, Todd Haynes is, is making a Douglas Sirk movie. But it also has this kind of um, – the closeted – element to um to the the, the dennis quaid character and stuff like that so it's 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 like a no it's like a knowing not knowing a nodding at each other a winking at each other type thing this movie kind of seems to operate on the same principles except that i don't think there was a movie that existed like this movie beforehand but it has all these classical elements in place like there was a lot of slow like i remember the slow motion shot where they were both in the rain and then he left finally it was like Towards the end, when when he asked about the ticket and he, about he was going to move to Singapore because Ping, um, and this you know Mr. Chow is played by Tony Leung and 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 Mrs. Chen is played by um, uh, Maggie Chung, um, who are both excellent. Um, they're talking about he's going to Singapore and and then he leaves her and they like their hands, kind of, he touches her her arm and then her her hand goes up her arm, like her nails kind of rake across her arm in slow motion. That was very classicist, you know what I mean? I could have seen something like that in black and white, maybe in like Wuthering Heights, which we talked about before. But I actually don't think it is, it's not a nod to classicism necessarily. He's not making an homage to anything. He's kind of re, he's using the ideas of certain tropes to to say something about um, the way that we, like you said before, the way that like we kind of process desire in a culture that kind of frowns on desire, like they had to go to Japan and sneak around. Like there's there's affairs, but if you have even her, Mrs. Chan's going to take her husband back if he comes back. It's just like a thing that's going to happen because of society says that it's supposed to happen, and she's not like necessarily prepared to go outside of that kind of like out in the open society. Even though it seems like her boss is also having. An affair. Um, so that payoff at the end, I th- I just found it like really, really powerful. Not necessarily emotional, but definitely like a valid um, ending for for this story. Where he's and and the fact that you don't necessarily know what the secret is. Like, what's the secret that he's telling? Like that temple and that hole. You know, what I mean, is that that he once loved a married woman? That doesn't seem like much of a secret. So there must be something else attached to that. You know what I mean? The twelve herbs and spices secret herbs and spices yeah what is that from the colonel's recipe yeah is it just 12 i thought it was i thought it was 20 maybe maybe it's more but here's the other problem i think we're having mario is that you're going into this seeing in in the mood for love as 24 okay so 24 on the bfi list you know what's right behind that you know what's after it what's after in the mood for love rashomon and then, oh, what's after Rashomon? Andre Rublev is after Rashomon. That's weird. Oh, what's after that? Oh, Stalker is apparently also not as good as this. And neither is The Godfather Part 2. And neither well, is fair. Taxi Driver. And neither is Bicycle Thieves. And neither is, well, The General Sucks. But, um, well, the BFI, the BFI list is interesting because I think it's done like as a conglomerate. So like the number of times it shows up on somebody's list um, over a conglomeration will be the number of times that pops up. And we've talked about this before. Redo a film podcast in an off shot we had ever gotten popular with this, you know, early on um, and had ended up being BFI people. Like, I wouldn't have seen Andre Rublev, you know, I wouldn't have seen a lot of these films. That's the reason we're doing this because we've missed a lot of these movies. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there's, there's a real tenability 
not tenable. There's a real sort of um, modernity bias that that sits in here. Like a lot, like most people that would have been reviewing this, I've seen in the mood for love. I not necessarily say, though, because there's two silent films in the top five. That's fair. Um, I'll say this. I think a lot of my problem with this stems from the fact that for the first like 15 minutes, I'm not connected to this film. Yep. And then for the last 25 minutes, I'm not connected. When Tony Chung and um, Maggie Chang, Chen, Chen, Tony Leung on screen. Yep. Tony Leung and Maddie Chiang, Chiang are mm-hmm. on are on screen together. Um, like everything about that's magnetic. Uh, you talked about how like it's not like a sensuality. Um, to like when they have that phrasing of the touch, when there's that kind of like dualism between uh, who made the first move kind of early on, or like when they're kind of fulfilling the roles of the meals. But there's a real sort of reflection in those moments that isn't sensuality, but it's emotional tenability. Well, it's sensuality it has, in the sense that there is there are senses involved, but it's not. I don't yeah, think no, it's sensuality it's, like it's like it's a pet. Every touch is like representative of like a passionate love or anything like that. There is a, there is a I think the two most obvious, like, overtly sexual um, references or innuendos almost in this are when she sleeps in his bed um, for, you know, overnight when they're trying to avoid the Mahjong game. And then at the end, when she follows him to Singapore and, you know, she smokes one of his cigarettes and leaves the cigarette, like, with her lipstick in, in the ashtray. You know what I mean? That's like as close as they've gotten to any kind of like physical romantic thing. But there's still you're left with with all of these, you know, if he leaves. So then it's 1966 when the movie ends. And then, you know, but he's still left with the memory of all of these like tiny little these tiny little touches. You know what I mean? These little shared breaths, these shared passages on the stairs. There's all that stuff. So I think it's that kind of sensuality. Well, no, no. But it's to me, what what I'm trying to say is it's. It, when they're on screen together, there is an emotional tenability in the sense of those touches and those moments kind of represent something greater in the purpose of there is real diction behind it, that there's real thought from both of them. There's real um, purpose and and intent mm-hmm. behind it. You know, and so you get this. You get this kind of weird chess game between the two sure yeah, yeah. screen together a chess game of, of of navigating both their feelings for one another and trying to understand the intent of the other while navigating this circus that is kind of the world that is pressing down mm-hmm. on them. when that's happening it's a really fascinating film but it's kind of bookended by these these moments where they're one away from each other and you're kind of just establishing their passing in time which i understand being kind of like an, uh, an establishing motif and kind of like a hook to get you into the fact of like, oh, how are they going to cross paths? It goes on for a little too long for me. It goes on for a good nearly 20 minutes, you know. The Like the getting them together stuff? Get it, getting them to the the asking her about the handbag scene. Yeah, see, I liked, time. and that's the thing, I liked all that stuff. I liked the I just, kind of, I liked the... The dynamics that he was kind of establishing there, the 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 never getting there dynamic. It's a dynamic that they kind of lasted for the whole rest of the movie. They you know, just could like never. They could just never get there. And, and just this, the, the, what when he finally leaves it for Singapore, and they keep missing each other. I just I tuned out by that point. Like there's, without those yeah. two on screen together, like there's a such a an, an excellent 
film there, kind of for me at least. There's such an excellent kind of intellectual, emotive experience there when they're sharing the screen together. Um, that when they're not, I kind of feel like it's just this way lesser of a film. Like, I think you're right. Know, you're, I think you're definitely right. You know, and, and, and that's what kind of like bums me out. And that's what kind of like tuned me out to it. That's what left me feeling kind of unfulfilled from it. If it left me feeling like, like I said, like it was fine because there's, there's a real, it, like this movie took what, 115 months to shoot. Like he's, Carwa is known for like just being really intense in his takes and everything, um, being really particular about everything. And, and you get that particularity and you get that, that sense of um, perfecting the emotion and the intent when they're on screen together, um, that when they're off screen together, I'm sure it's still there, but it's not as um, broad. It's not as well, ov- overwhelming. Here's what I would and say. I guess I, guess I get, I, I could, let me, I'll just finish that. Yeah. I, I guess I can understand where people see like the sensuality of it is because it does feel, when they're on screen together and they have these interactions, it does feel overwhelming. It is kind of like a sensory overload load sort of experience mm-hmm. when they're on screen together. Not because like, oh, like when they're just going to fuck, but it's more just like, an, oh, <laughs> like these two are having such intense thoughts just about things in general, just about how life is from their relationships with their spouses to how they handle their feelings for one another to how they navigate being working sure. successful-ish members of society. Like there's such an intense provocation there that it is a sens- sensory overlord sort of loads okay. sort of experience. And so this and is yeah. part. It's 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 meh. And if you wanted to, we could sing we could segue really nicely into the next movie from here. But I think the I think for a long time the stakes seem really high. You know what I mean? And there's just there um there like you said, there's just a lot loaded into every interaction that they are having with each other. And then as soon as he leaves, um I think the the stakes get a lot less high. I was actually kind of bummed. I loved the, I loved his last moment at the, in the Cambodian temple. I thought that was fucking great. Um, but when she goes to find him, I was just like, oh, I don't need this. Like this is what happens in regular movies. Like you know, she gets you know they separate, but then she goes and and looks for him, and then she can't find him, and she leaves like the message, and she get, takes her slippers back. I was like, but I don't I don't need this stuff. Like that's that's not what this movie is supposed to be about. This movie's not supposed to be playing to cliches. This movie's supposed to be establishing its own, um, you know, its own language, its own tropes. Um, it's supposed to be referencing itself as it goes. Um, so yeah, the when the stakes are all the way up, I think the movie's fantastic. But, I, I would agree. I would agree. But when, uh, like, I, I really 100% agree with that. Um, it's just unfortunately when the stakes aren't high. It, this movie just makes me just quit on it. I just quit on this movie when the stakes aren't there for me. All right. Let's switch places. So, <laughs> having having seen that um, in the mood for love and just kind of being kind of like underwhelmed. Uh, I, I just, I don't know what I was expecting coming in the mood for love. And, and I guess I was being unfair to it, but it just, I needed to. St- I wanted something else. Sure, 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 sure. And it was, you know, it was it was ten forty last night, and I just was flicking through the good old Criterion Channel, the the best streaming service it's the there best. is. It's the best. 
Anyone who disagrees with that is just out of their mind. Where else can you like watch House and then follow that up by like looking for special features on a film House and stumble upon the trove that is Nixon's period of speeches to the United States through the Watergate scandal leading to his resignation. Well, it's like, like, that's a thing. Oh, it's so that's good. A thing that's on Criterion Channel. Well, and I was looking yesterday. I was looking at the uh, 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 at the you know our list because we you know we were sharing this channel and. I was, I was like, oh, what is this stuff? And then after I said, like, confused, what is this stuff? And I was like, this is the best list ever. I was like, we are just, we can do anything we want here. This, oh. Yeah. But I ended up going for, what did, I don't know. I wanted something that was going to be a sensory overload mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so I went with uh, Louis Bunnell because I was like, that's going to be. <laughs> that's going to do it for me. And I was like, where, I, was, I was thinking I was going to watch Exterminating Angels. Because uh, oh, I haven't seen that. You haven't um, seen Oh. We talked about having seen Exterminating Angels. But I have seen it. I love Exterminating Angels, so we can't talk yeah. about it. And as I was going through it, I, fe- I saw Belle de Jour. And... Veux-tu que je te dise un secret, Séverine? Je t'aime chaque jour davantage. Un jour, il fallait que je vous voie sans votre mari, naturellement. Anaïs, 11 cité Jean de Saumur. N'ayez pas peur, vous êtes ici chez vous. J'ai toute prête à vous aider. Quand voudriez-vous commencer Vous êtes gentille et fraîche. C'est le genre qui plaît ici. Si vous vous appeliez Belle de Jour, Oui, si vous voulez. Vous avez quelqu'un qui vous attend? Un petit ami? Un petit mari? I never knew Belle de Jour was directed by Benel. And, hmm. But Belle de Jour, we, we talk often about like that criterion phase in both of our lives where like, you know, you spend a thousand dollars in movies. <laughs> I, um, I would just try to like rent as many criterion movies. Like has... Movies popped up on the Criterion list. I would try to rent them through Netflix, mm-hmm. uh, the disc service. Um, but for uh, judging a book by its cover, the cover for Belle de Jour, I always saw that. I was like, that movie's going to be boring. Mm. I was like, that movie looks like it's dull. That movie looks like it's that movie looks like it's a Robert Altman Woody Allen movie. Ugh. I looked at that. I was like, that's a Robert Altman Woody Allen like sex comedy, <laughs> a sex farce. Yeah, no, like I I thought Belle de Jour was going to be like a sex farce and. I mean, it is. Have have we established like my hatred of the sixties and seventies, like sex farces and whatnot? Like how how much I hate those movies. I don't like them either. So I fucking hate. I think Barbarella is like one of the worst movies ever. Yeah, made. yeah, yeah. I've got no time for that shit. Um, I and I've talked about how uh, Woody Allen, like no. even before Woody Allen got canceled as a person, outside of Matchpoint and to the slider set like Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which even that I find just fine. Woody Allen sucks fucking ass. I mean, I'm I'm sitting next to my Roger Ebert Great Movies book, Mario, because Belle de Jour is in this book. And there's two Woody Allen movies in here, and it just makes me so sad. Every the time crimes I... And mis- yes. Crimes and Misdemeanors and Annie Hall. No, no, no. Listen. Is listen. it Manhattan and Annie Hall? It's Annie Hall and Manhattan. Manhattan? Oh, okay. Come on! Because sometimes people... Sometimes people will knock off Manhattan for crimes and misdemeanors. Well, because crimes and misdemeanors is at least age appropriate. 
Listen, when Diane Weist starts winning Oscars for being in Woody Allen movies, that's when Woody Allen is okay because he got Diane Weist some Oscars. That's it. Yeah. That's it. But, no, Woody Allen fucking sucks. Woody Allen's garbage. Yeah, he is. I'm. I love Forget being. It. This is the one time I love being like 38. Is that like I've missed Woody Allen mattering at all in my life? So when I started watching movies, he was releasing The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. So I didn't have to care about Woody Allen. He, he came back for a while. He came back for a little bit, but not in any had, way that mattered had, to me. Well, he had Midnight. In, he had like Blue Jasmine and Midnight in Paris, where like people were like, "Oh, he's coming back," and they're like, "Oh, right, he's a huge piece of shit." But you know what? I just and his movies, yeah. suck. I just watched uh, The House with the Clock in Its Walls, and I don't know how much Blue Jasmine's, like, goodness or that people perceive is due to Woody Allen or just the fact that Kate Blanchett is amazing in everything. She's great in A House with the Clock in Its Walls. And Eli Roth directed that. Yeah. Film auteur Eli Roth. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> I decided, fuck it. I'm not going to watch... Exterminating Angels tonight. I'm going to watch Belle du Jour because if Benel directed it, there's got to be some weird shit. And I was right. That's fun. Uh, Servine <laughs> is a young housewife to uh, her doctor husband. Um, they're they're pretty pretty well in love, I would say, emotionally. They, they seem very, very much in, in love in an intellectual sort of romantic way. But <laughs> He is a stick in the mud for her when it comes to sex, because she wants someone who's gonna do elicit some rape fantasies and tie her up and rough her up a bit and dominate her. And well, Pierre, fresh faced Jean Sorel, he's just not doing that. He wants, he's, he loves her. He's 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 a puppy dog. Um, so they go on a, a ski trip, and she meets uh, Henry, whose son, and, and Renee, and. Uh, Henry's kind of has has this weird sort of obsessiveness with her, and it's like visual sort of domination with her, and uh, you know she's she's kind of uncomfortable with that. But uh, she she you know when she goes back to to Paris, she meets up with Renee, and um, she learns that a mutual friend of theirs is working at a brothel, and that's that's weird, isn't it? How like brothels exist still and. Or they have the red lights, and the taxi driver's like, they don't have red lights anymore, lady. <laughs> taxi driver, right? Also, one of my favorite moments is you clearly see the taxi driver looking back at them in front of them on, I assume, was a green screen because it's probably filmed in front of like the studio. Red light, that taxi driver goes right through that red light that's coming up. That's got to be a metaphor. There's got to be some <laughs> symbolism there. No, no more red lights. So. There's no more red lights. <laughs> uh, but, she, you know... Um, She's a, uh, you know, she's 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 kind of oh, about it, and uh, but eventually she, she she kind of like, Servine kind of decides to um, you know, try it's, it out. It sticks in her mind. Try it out because she's she she she's she has these urges because she has some weird young, she has some weird traumas from earlier in her life. Um, things that she still needs to kind of kind of work through um and so she goes to this this really high flute and brothel run by madame asson um and uh tells her that she's willing to work only in the afternoons she has to always be out by 5 p.m 
And so she gets the name Belle de Jour, you know, because before the prostitutes were called Belle de Nuit, and the ladies of the night, she'll be the lady of the day. Um, she, she's reluctant at first, but she, she you know, she, she sleeps with somebody and she runs off for a week and is, you know, not into it, but then emotions kind of overwhelm her and um, she goes back and, and starts working there. And meanwhile, Son's kind of trying to meet her and talk to her. Son's been, has met her before and has been, kind of been more persistently aggressive. Um, and she's kind of still having her fantasies about this, but uh, but she's she's sort of fulfilling those fantasies by um, you know sleeping with various kind of weird patrons at um, the uh, at the brothel, um, and and from here she actually starts becoming more intimate with Pierre, uh, which I found a little bit bit of a weird thing to have happen. Um, in time, she eventually becomes involved with a young gangster. Um, Killian Murphy. And, uh, <laughs> I thought that too. I was like, that guy looks exactly <laughs> like Killian Murphy. <laughs> he he is not. He that uh, Pierre Clement, Clementi died at fifty-seven of liver cancer. Oh, that's too bad. I think he's like one of the only people who's like younger in this film who's died. Huh. Like almost everyone else in this film is still alive. <laughs> um, they get in a very rot, intense relationship, filling all those needs of domination that that uh, you know that Servine wants, um, but eventually one day, uh, Henry Hussan shows up at the brothel and then chooses Belle and, uh, you know, says, says she won't, he won't tell her husband, uh, but that now, you know, he's lost interest in her because she just thought she was kind of like this uptight, high flutin' kind of like a girl scout. I mean, mm-hmm. he calls, you know, Pierre a boy scout, but he, he thought that she was of that type and now he's not so interested thinking that she's just kind of a, a slut, a whore, as they... As they They've said that, that they say that multiple times. Very, the very often. Yes. Um, so, Servine kind of leaves the profession, um, uh, but she doesn't realize that she's followed by uh, Marcel's um, partner in crime, Hippolyte, uh, who reveals the location to Marcel and Marcel accosts her at our house and says, you know, let's run off together. Let's, let's, let's get rid of the pretenses. We're going to, going to bang constantly. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh-huh. and, um, you know, Servine's like, no, I'm not about that life. And Marcel goes, well, I know what the problem is. It's, it's Pierre and holds up a, his picture and walks out in a huff. As she's sitting there, she hears three shots looks out and sees that Pierre's been shot by Marcel. And Marcel runs off and gets shot once in the stomach, dramatically collapses to the ground dead. Uh, Unbelievable. Pierre is left blind and crippled and mute from the attack. Um, and Servine has to take care of him. And Henry comes to the house one day and reveals the truth to Pierre because, you know, Pierre is going to feel like he's a burden on Servine, the beautiful, delicate Servine. Um, and this will reveal the truth, you know, that she's, that they're equals and that she kind of deserves this. Uh, and in the end, Servine kind of imagines um, Pierre and her, uh, Pierre being healthy and fine and then living this kind of um, normal, romantic life, but with still some of the 
still some of the, the memories of, of, of the domination that she wants uh, kind of told through the carriage ride because the, the film opens with the carriage ride mm-hmm. where Pierre <clears throat> dominates her. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. Do you want to start with your thoughts or my thoughts? Whatever you want to do, buddy. I fucking love this movie. I, I don't know why. I don't know why, but it's constantly like, it's not transgress. It's, it's it's transgressive for its time. Yeah, but there's there's this weird line it, it draws where Benel like follows this like expectation of of what a woman's role should be, and that she's in the wrong for doing this, you know, and that she's she's doing things that are morally incorrect. But there's this other line that she draws. Hey, draws that's kind of like there's there's a real ownership over her body and i don't know it's, it's got to be like, like one of the most famous shots of the film i don't look up like famous shots of the film but like when she's kind of bleeding after she she has an experience with that that asian man mm-hmm. and everyone's like kind of horrified by it it's like well i'm sorry i had to go through that and she just like picks uh, her head up smiling picks her head up with this kind of like dick drunk smile Nice. Dick drunk an appropriate term to use, right? I think that's that's not. I think dick drunk is that's used quite often. This is nineteen sixty two, right? Smile. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a fine term to use. Um, I love that, and I, it's like there's this grappling of control and like still grappling with what's expected from society at the time, and it works perfectly in kind of harmony with. Um, within the mood for love, you know, like, like there's this expectation of the kind of air she has to put on um, versus like what she wants. And, and I, I don't know, there's, I don't know, this is what people respond to, but the fact that she takes control of it and has like full complete ownership of it and that the people surrounding her who kind of like navigate that with her are also women, I found really nice. It was, it was really um, nice to see that. And I, it, I don't know, it's just, it's just this like, I kind of wish it ended differently, of course, because like I, don't, I didn't give a fuck about Pierre. Ultimately, mm-hmm. like whatever. Like, like I kind of, I, I kind of wish she had been honest with him. And like, at the, it kind of ended with her being like, "Listen, you need to beat the shit out of me sometimes. Cause that's what I want, you know, in a consensual way. Well, he, you know, yeah, like in a sex game way. Um, and I kind of wish there was like that ever that dialogue because there's never there's never a point where she expresses that desire to Pierre obviously. Um, no. And I wonder, and there's also not a lot of opportunities for her to think to herself, like, is it not appropriate for me to express that to him? I mean, the only thing that we kind of get in the film is that, um, Hussan keeps calling him a boy scout and it's like, well, does that actually mean that he's a boy scout? Is that like, is that, you know, well, it's funny because there's a part where he says like, Hey, is there a guy in Paris? Like when they're on vacation at the coast, because I was like, Oh, he's, it's a really underdeveloped character. There's not a lot to him, and it's just kind of like who shit, uh, Pierre. Okay. This is like real kind of garbage writing or whatnot. Not garbage writing, but this is real garbage development of this character, and he's just kind of there. Well, it's Boone Well, yeah. Cat- he's there to be a catalyst for everything. But the scene in the beach where he like goes, "Is there somebody else?" and and like he gives this kind of intent, like this kind of thing of if there is, that's okay, sort of thing, and like mm-hmm. we'll figure it out kind of suggests to me almost to an extent like Pierre might not be as like clean cut as well, as they say he is right that like 
the, the problem isn't necessarily her desires or whatnot, but her fucking like lack of communication and like her inability to communicate like ends up being to me like the real, the real crux of the issue of, of the Servine character, like her inability to say what she wants. I mean, and she's dealing with serious like early trauma, but I found that intriguing. Like she has these intense desires that, that can be fulfilled and Pierre might actually be someone to offer that because when he says like he's okay, and you kind of see it later when, you know, he has, she has that fantasy of her and Hussan having sex underneath the table mm. with the broken. I still don't know what they're doing with the little. I didn't know what that was inferring. The broken glass with an envelope and lily seeds. I didn't look it up, but um, I I didn't know. But I don't want to know what Vanel was thinking there. She was but having like, a bad day. I I can't. I, I get this intriguing feeling. It's like it was the lack of communication because I think Pierre's a little more open. Than he's portrayed. <clears throat> I mean, I think there's a, I think there's, there's a, I think so. I think you're right. I think the problem, there's a problem with this movie that I didn't think about at all when I was watching it. And I'm just thinking about when we're talking about it, is that they almost try to explain her desires through her trauma, which is um, problematic, I suppose, in all eras of his society, and I but it's a, it's... especially problematic now, but was problematic then too, and is just stupid and like but it's also Bunuel is just he doesn't give a shit he's he's you know he just wants to have that you know he's gonna stick that stuff in there um as much as he can I think I, I mean I don't I it's funny that we're having this is a really funny conversation and one my opinion of this I my opinion has nothing to do with like your opinion of in the mood for love because we didn't really talk about it before. You were just like, "Oh, Belle de Jour is really good," and I was like, "I could watch Belle de Jour. I could, you know, find some time to watch it." I was I found myself really bored by this movie, like intensely bored. Like there, when we talked about like stakes in in the mood for love, there are literally no stakes in this movie. I really don't care what Catherine Deneuve looks like. Like she could look like whatever she wants to look like. Fine, she is a a. a an empty vessel in this movie. There was no, like I didn't care about her experience or her desires or like her fulfillment of her desires. Like at like all. As a, as a performer, as a performer. Well, just like as a character. It's like, she didn't make me care about like her being able to fulfill those desires because what was going to happen? She was going to get divorced from Pierre. Um, they wouldn't. She wouldn't even sleep like in the same bed with him because he just wanted to cuddle. You know what I mean? So like, is that really going to be like such a bad thing? So part of me thinks that Bunuel, being Bunuel, he's more of an ideas guy. So like the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie and exterminating angel, and that's part of my problem with this. Not part of my problem with this movie, but you know, in the same way that the language surrounding in the mood for love is one thing, the language surrounding Belle de Jour is the fact that it was made by Louis Bunuel. Which means something, you know what I mean? So even in Roger Ebert's great review of it, which is in his original great movies book, it's the first like when I originally saw it, it was because of that, and I I don't like remember the experience of watching it, but I'm assuming that it was like the same thing, because I don't remember it at all. Was that like this is the same guy that made these movies, these really transgressive films about society, and here we have a movie where Catherine Deneuve is a voluntary prostitute. Um, you know, she's, you know, naked a bunch of times. There's a, there's a, a a necrophilia scene in a way in it. And like that in and of itself is transgressive. Oh, that guy is just masturbating next to his dead daughter. (laughs) 
That's not necrophilia. That but is the two, but like necro adjacent self pleasure. But I don't know what else to call it, so I'm going to call it that. But you've defined necro- it, so now everybody yeah. knows. Um, but the two, the the only two scenes that I thought really worked on any kind of level are are like the first two fantasy scenes. So like the original carriage scene, and then when they're throwing mud at her, those are the only two interesting scenes. They're the only two scenes that kind of help set the stage for what we're really dealing with because out in real life, she is, you're right. She is not communicating any of that stuff at all to anybody. And she doesn't do a good enough job. And this is not like to shit on Catherine Deneuve. I think she's, this is an iconic performance in its way. You know what I mean? In the same way that like, you know, some Marilyn Monroe performances were iconic. And it's not like she was like a tremendously great actress. Um, They're just iconic performances. Um, there's no emo. I don't. There's no emotion here. This is all just setup. You know what I mean? It's all just setup for something great. And I guess the setup is the hair is the her picking her head up scene. And I guess the setup is the ending. And we're supposed to feel bad. I don't. I'm not 100 percent sure. Like I don't really. I don't really care. I don't. I don't care what happens to any of these people. Yeah, I. I. I I almost. It has this sense of intentionality behind that though i don't i feel like you you don't care you're not supposed to care about these people i feel like it's it's, oh um, i i agree with you i feel like it's it's kind of like seinfeld before seinfeld the fact that kind of they're not horrible people but people have these problems events happen nothing changes they're just except for the fact that you know he needs pierre needs help peeing now yeah i think bunuel thought this was supposed to be really funny and subversive, and I don't think it's as subversive as he thinks it is. A, and I think it's not that. No, it's not subversive. Really. In that, I don't think it's really. It's not very funny. I mean, there's moments in the Exterminating Angel and the Screech Hammer's Bourgeoisie that are like uncomfortably hilarious. You know what I mean? That you can't even laugh at, but you understand, like inside of your soul, like that is that is tremendously funny. You know what I mean? But in a way that's disturbing. I mean, some of the scenes, it's weird that he shot so much of this. It's weird the way this is shot because it's so flat. Like some of the stuff, some of the shots, actually all of the interior shots are so fucking flat that they're not like, they don't say anything other than like, like you just kind of used made side for like, there's a situation comedy element to like some of the room scenes with her in the, in the Johns. You know what I mean? That stuff is very like bewitched. Well, the thing I find, the thing I, I guess I appreciate about this was this like focus on fem- woman pleasure. Like the focus, like that, that's why I enjoyed about it. Like, like there's so few of these classic films that kind of like rest in that. Maybe yeah, but her, like, her rest in- yeah, but her pleasure is, is to satisfy or to mask or to in, in response to a trauma. You know what oh, I mean? I agree. I that's, agree. Which that's is why, weird. That's why. That's why I would like look at this and say like it would I like I really enjoyed the experience I really loved the experience from just because because it, it still like got some abject weirdness to it just from the fantasy scenes yeah, yeah, yeah I would still call this an inferior trouble every day you know well and I think trouble every day is a deeply flawed movie but I would rather watch trouble every day every day than. Belle de Jour. I think there's but, are, but they're they're doing they're doing sim very similar things. Right, but think about what Trouble Every Day is doing. Like Trouble Every Day is fucked up. Like yeah. but um, it's not just like fucked up in terms of like its graphicness, it's emotionally fucked up. And that but that's kind of what makes 
a flawed movie still kind of work because you can connect with those characters. You Or if not the characters, you can connect with the situation emotionally. Like, Jesus, like, she's going to eat that guy. Like, and, and there's a... There's a real emotional pertinence that Claire Denis puts on screen there that you know isn't isn't there right. as, as much here. But I, I don't know. It's just it's it. It's one of those films. Like I say, I appreciate. I appreciate it while watching. It's kind of like the stepping stone to everything that kind of would come. Like because mm-hmm. it feels it does feel like it opens doors. You know, like this feels like at least for. I agree for all its flaws. Um, I respond a lot to like the nihilistic irreverence of it, but I'm going to respond to any sort of nihilistic irreverence that isn't trying to be like, that's going to be more absurdist with that irreverence than trying to be like, like nihilist, that trying to be um, depressing with that. Mm. And, and, and like, who knows just, you know, is known for his, his diet, like just pure nihilism with things, but kind of going like an absurdism, you know, a, a Beckett Sartre's absurdism who, Satra, I hate because and everything who's piece of shit. Um, just <laughs> dropping all of my hatred on people today. Um, I like Beckett, but and Godard, but but Satra can suck a shit <laughs> piece. <laughs> uh, you guys are stuck there, <laughs> yeah. Um, but so so I, I did respond a lot to like just kind of like that this irreverence to like just like. These are people in a position, probably gone to that position through trauma in their past life, through religious repression. I, I think it kind of presents those things to like be like, does it matter? I don't fucking care, but here it is because probably somebody wants it. But then kind of deals with it like in this way of like, ah, look at all these horrible things that happen. And they end up in the same place, but still also responding with it of like, hey, this woman's also fulfilling her sexual needs and is having a good time. And sure. Like it, she ends up in a rough place, but it doesn't feel as though it's a morality tale, right? It, you know, Marcel did it. It just happens to be happenstance that that Marcel is there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. It's not her. It's not. Of I didn't take it as any moral failing of her. I took it more as just like a oh, you know, you you roll the dice enough times and things aren't going to work your way. Right. Yeah. They. You know. Um, Roger Eber points out in his great movie review that or this great movie essay that like the movie is not really about to kind of to your point the movie is not really about sex it's kind of about like the like the imagination you know what i mean and how like each client um much like um severine has their own thing that they don't we don't really get to see fulfilled on screen but we just know that it is it is has been fulfilled um, and that the these desires are are of this like this person's alone type of thing you know what I mean like yeah. we, each person has their own thing and each person in this film is free in their way to explore explore those things and like she's less free because she's a woman and she has to be married and there's certain there's certain, you know, limitations placed on her where, like, these men can just go to this brothel. But she has to, like, you know, when she rings the doorbell that first time, she kind of ducks back into a neighbor's. Or, you know, a woman comes downstairs and she kind of ducks to look at, like, an elevator or something like that. She can't just she can't just explore this in the same way that, with the same freedom that men can. But she has 
she does have her own fantasies, you know what I mean? And they're hers and they're relative to her experience, whether or not how, whether how valid that experience is, is kind of up to, uh, is kind of hard to judge from the 1960s to now. Um, But um, that's a, that's a, the movie's a net positive, like from that perspective, I think. I also wonder, and, and maybe we can finish on this. Uh, I don't know if there's any final thoughts you have on it. Mm-mm. Always just ending on this weird curiosity theory I have in film about positive opinions people can have on film sometimes that can be skewed from an experience of the day. So I had kind of that experience with, with Belle de Jour. And it, I was kind of like sitting there, but appreciating it. But like, I really got invested with the professor scene. <laughs> um, the domination scene. Yep. And the reason I did was because I, I mentioned this earlier. I, I've been playing Yakuza Zero uh, quite a bit. I've been, you know, digging that game, and, the, and there's a lot of a lot of interesting moments in that game. There is early on in chapter two of that game a 20 minute side story where you have to help a dominatrix uh, be a dominatrix, which involves a humiliation foreplay, and mm-hmm. you have to teach her like how to go through that with like stepping on a guy and spitting on him and humiliating him. So I played that mission in that game. And not four hours later, I watched this movie. And so I saw that part went, haha, that's funny. And it connected and like, it invested me a little more in the film. Hmm. I had this weird theory on, on people's appreciation sometimes in art that sometimes outside experiences even of the day, in that day, might give you a more positive view on a film or any piece of art. Yeah. If you're taking something into it from another piece of art or another, and I'm going to say that video games are art. Fuck you, Roger Ebert. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I have to defend yourself, defend yourself, Ebert. Hmm. I give you 14 days (laughs) to write a response. Also, uh, if you're right a response, I concede. What? Yeah, yeah, you win that. You win that, Roger. <laughs> um, I mean, I kind of feel the same way because we had this conversation when we did episode 79, I think, or whatever episode of the Florida Project was. And I talked about the idea that, like, I watched the Florida Project only because I just wanted to wash the fucking taste of the shape of water out of my mouth. So part of me, before I went to making my list, was like, did 78, I? 78. 78. Oh, God, I almost got it. 79 was that thing you do. Um, yep. When I'm into making lists, I was like, do I really like the Florida Project as much as I think that I do? Or did I just respond to the complete lack of, like, gross, bougie decadence that is, like, the shape of water and kind of, like, used Florida Project to, like, erase that out of my mind? And it, like, did such a good job of it that I was just like, this movie is fantastic. And, like... That movie for me holds up in in a lot of other ways. It's kind of renewed itself, and so I can appreciate it in lots of different ways. But I ninety percent. All right, girls, let's move on. We gotta move on. <laughs> oh, every man, every I year I get away from that movie. The uh, the flamingo scene like is is like stays like in in the front of my mind. That would be like a top twenty scene for me in like the past decade or so well just weird how it's a good scene in the last think about how much love we have given willem dafoe in the last three years how many willem dafoe conversations have you and me had in the last three years just being like that guy's fucking amazing that guy's great how many willem dafoe conversations have 
has like the, the culture had in the last three years. Like go anywhere on the internet and people are doing hark and then following it up with that entire speech. You know, yeah, it's fucking Willem Dafoe. But but I I've had other I've had other instances that I can't think of right now. Um, Every year for the past three years we've had at least William Dafoe love though. Yeah, oh for sure. Um but in terms of Belle de Jour, I've had I've had that experience where I've like just gone into something and like because of whatever happened that day, I was just like, oh, I was totally ready for this. But I think that I've had the opposite happen too. And I don't know if you've experienced that where I've because of what's happened you know, on a given day, I'm just like I'm just not ready for it. Like I'm just I'm not ready. Like I'm still going I'm I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm going through that a little bit with the Nick Cave record that came out last November. Where like I didn't get it right away and then um like a bunch of like my life just kind of yeah, you know, I just was too busy to like kind of give it the attention it deserved, and now I have all this time. But like, I'm not ready to dig into a like a new Nick Cave record that's a lot about like the death of his son and like all this other stuff, and has all these different emotions. Like, this is now is not the time. I would be it would it would not do well. You know what I mean? Every yeah. day I would have that experience where I'd be like, well, now I should listen to it, and every day it would be like, well, this is just a crushing. Like this is I'm not engaging with this emotion at all. It's just like ruining my day. Well, I guess we mentioned that I mentioned this last week with uh, Into the Wild. Like Into the Wild suffered from the fact that I went from abject, I abjectly hated it at the time because it had to follow that trifecta of No Country for Old Men, The Savages, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Diamond of the Butterfly. Um, speaking of Nick Cave, like randomly searching Criterion Channel yesterday, I found like a 13 minute documentary from '93 on the song called The Song. Mm-hmm. I've about not Nick seen Cave it. like producing some song. It was, I can't remember who directed it. Um, but it was it was dedicated to Wim Wenders. It's a fun little thirteen minute documentary. Nice, I have to check it out. Uh, just Nick Cave producing a song in Germany in uh, Berlin, like right after the fall of the wall. That makes sense. Once again, searching for in the mood for love and <laughs> the song. I think I think Criterion Channel just does that. They're like, we know you're searching for something unrelated, but here's this. Well, here's a, here's a, the <laughs> one downside, but it's also a positive about the Criterion Channel. Their search engine fucking sucks. It does. If you put too much or too little of like, or get anything slightly wrong, it will just shoot you off into areas of the site that you didn't even know existed. But again, that's a good thing because you're just like, what is this? Where did this come from? I'm not even looking for this. It is the TV tropes of streaming sites, though, in the sense that like, I don't know if you, you ever watch TV, tro- like you ever go to the TV tropes website. Uh-uh. It's a popular website for like going like, it just talks about TV tropes. Uh-huh. But our pop culture tropes, video game tropes, and everything, and eventually leads down to this like well of you just going and clicking on links and links and links. Mm-hmm. Like Wikipedia can do that, kind of do that. The problem is with, with the criteria thing is like you might go for like, and I've done this before where I was looking for a movie and three hours later realized I had just been watching videos related to the search result that was presented to me. Yeah. That was completely unrelated to the movie I was searching for. Yep. And then had to stop myself and go back and watch said movie I was looking, mm-hmm. trying to watch. I, I think that was, um, what was that? That was, uh, what, which movie was that? That was our, well, that was uh, Alhazard Bathazar. Happened with Alhazard Bathazar. I went down a, a treasure trove of like Polish films <laughs> that were completely unrelated. And then like Polish documentaries and like post-world war ii stuff and i was just like i was just like oh i have to watch this movie and i watched it i was like oh right this movie stinks yeah oh yeah i, I should have just i should have just not watched old hazard bathazar i was looking for that other movie um 
yeah, Predator in general. Awesome. But no, it's interesting that we came, it kind of came to this, um, you know, from two different ways. Like you found, you know, Belle de Jour kind of just fine-ish, right? Well, yeah, but I, but I think it's fairly typical of how we do this things. Like in the mood for love is a much more emotional movie, and it's the movie that I respond to like on a deeper level. And Belle de Jour is a much more ideas oriented movie, and that's the movie that you kind of respond to on a deeper level. Yeah. You know, what I mean, there's more there. It's that's, a it's an ideas. It's, a, it's more of an ideas movie than it is like an emotional, tort of force. I, I can understand, and more of like a it is more of a central movie, and I I do respond to like intense sensuality in my films as well that i don't like a physicality that i think you don't respond to as much as i do well i just don't get uh, physicality comes in all different shapes and sizes so i would i would respond to the sensualness of in the mood for love more than i would um belle de jour you know to actually to bring this i I mean i mean like physicality leading like action that leads definitively to like on-screen orgasm is something I would respond more to. Than well, and so actually I was just going to say that I res- I actually liked In the Mood for Love. I responded to In the Mood for Love a lot more than I responded to something like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I just watched and I was like, this is good. But there was no point in Portrait of a Lady on Fire except to the very end that I was kind of like really very wrapped up in what I was seeing on screen. Whereas in... Uh, in the mood for love, I kind of kept it, it's my interest in it kept like renewing itself, like through music and through these shots and through all of the like the visual language of it. I kind of kept get getting reinvested in it, and it was only like it was only that one moment at the end where like she comes back that I was kind of turned off. But like when he goes, like there's though actually they're, they're good. You know, there's an essay I think in. The in the mood for love, like the end, like the Cambodia scene, and then like the scene of um, Noemi looking at like the painting. You know what I mean? Or looking at um, um, what's her name? What's the the other girl's name in Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Heloise. Like looking at Jesus. her, looking at her, like at at the opera. You know what I mean? Or at the symphony. Um, there's like that same type of there's same type of release involved like emotional release involved in both of the things um and then that's in both that's actually a really interesting thing and i'm going to say this i'm going to talk this also out. Did you say did you say nomi the actress's name not marianne no i just as long oh. as i get one of them that well, is, if we're gonna do that then it'd be a, then it'd be adele doesn't matter you know how i'm talking about i gotta keep it consistent you can't go like I can do whatever I I can name. do whatever I want. It's our podcast. Listen, 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 man. When it fucking comes to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, you cannot. Um, yeah. So there you go. A movie I'm a movie I'm not a big fan of. Have you watched it recently? I haven't watched it actually, like in like three weeks. You okay? <laughs> yeah. <but laughs> you started mentioning Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and I was like. Do I want to play more Yakuza Zero tonight, or do I want to watch Portrait of Lady on Fire? I'm not going to watch Portrait of Lady on Fire. I'm not going to play Yakuza Zero. I think I'll watch another Criterion movie. There you go. Interestingly enough, to finish on this, though, I was looking up Olhazar Balthazar. Um, I was looking at our BFI list, because I figure we do another BFI list movie next week. Okay. Or you want to go back to the list? It's up to you. List or BFI list? I'm, 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 actually, like BFI lists are probably easier for me, because I have a bunch of work to do. Yeah, that's how I was thinking for the next couple weeks. I was thinking heavily in June we do a run of because we're gonna get a bunch of new of new movies. Yeah, 
and like that'd be good to just like shoot off a bunch of list movies yeah good because it's 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 good to do a list movie with a new movie yep like that's those are always fun um so i was looking at alazar balthazar that fucking donkey piece of shit movie <laughs> that's my new name for it the two directors uh, of note that we've talked about on this podcast uh put it on their list what director just just shooting out weird directors both of them have directed films we've talked about in the past oh no 10 weeks or so just offhandedly who would you who would you who would you guess just just i won't make you keep guessing just guess two random directors mm, not brisson Tar- i mean not can't be tarkovsky because we've talked about uh, tarkovsky they're, they're living 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 modern directors who who put uh, all hazard about directors Oh, that put Ahazar Balthazar on their list? Yeah. But they uh, also have Al-Azhar, movies... Ahazar Balthazar ranks 21 on the director's But they also have movies on the list. They, they do not. But oh. we've just mentioned them in, in, in passing or um, in discussion of films we should put, like, to, that we should discuss. Uh, so Ber- is this a Bergman do. thing? It's not Bergman. No, no. Living, living Modern Directors. Okay, Living Modern Directors. They put Alhazard Balthazar on their list. I'll give you. I'll give you a really. I'll give you a really easy, easy hint for one. Canopy. I'll give you a, a canopy film. Are we gonna do Santa Tango? Well, so one of the directors that put Alhazard Balthazar is Bellatar. Bellatar. Okay. That's a, that's a weird one. And the other one. Um, you might need some time for that one. The other one. Well, we're not gonna do it next week. But he put Alhazard Balthazar. The other director who did it. Uh, had a has directed three films and was supposed to come out with a new one this year, but might not. Oh, Jonathan Glazer. Yeah, those are those are two those are two guys I would not have imagined putting Olazar Balthazar on their list. Um, no, I don't see where Jonathan. I totally get Bellatar because he's. We kind of talked about guess, that when we yeah. did the Alhazar Balthazar review. He's consumed <laughs> Bresson and then animals. just. And then just like sent it back out into the world with this like a really intense thing, um, and torture animals. Well, so what movie did you want to do? Oh, for list, uh, I don't know. I was, I was opening up the list and I want to look at it. Let's see. Um, Let's look at it on the air. Yeah, I mean, real, real, by real, I mean you'll cut out the dead air that that pauses in here. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, did we want to do Ordet? Because we were talking about doing Ordet. We did talk about doing our debt, didn't we? Our debt would we be haven't done a dryer film yet. We have not done a dryer. Yeah, I was thinking our debt or Legantele. Oh, we could do that too. But I think our debt's I think our debt's more our our debt's more our shit, right? Like I think dryer's, so. Dryer's more the podcast than we haven't done any. Than, yeah, we haven't we done really, any dryer. We really, we really can't tell if. Jean Vigo would be our, our shit because he died at 29, so he didn't really have much, <laughs> much of a filmography. That's not funny. Um, I don't know why I'm laughing. Yeah, we could do our debt. He's been dead for 76 years, I think. I think it's, it's still mean. It's okay to make one sort of still yeah, mean. He did die also from tuberculosis, which is. Well, I mean, that's. What is he, a character in a Henry he had, James novel? He had tremendous. I mean, his last name is Vigo, so it's. It's possible. He was probably in a Hugo novel. <laughs> Great hair, though. Great hair. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd 
we've talked about dryer enough to where I think yeah. it might be time to, uh, to let's do our debt. And then whatever dryer we can kind of come up with like during the week, we, you know, yeah. I mean, I've, I haven't really talked about passion of Joan the Ark on this podcast. And I, I've just texted you a lot about my love for that. And that's, that's also on the VFI list higher up. Yep. Uh, um, so if you get a chance to watch passion, I've seen it. Oh, discuss it. We were talking about it for something else recently. I almost, I almost feel like I'm going to watch all hundred films on the BFI list by the end of this year. It's possible. Um, all right. I will, to, I will say this really quickly. This BFI list is, is solid. Like in terms of like how much it, even if I disagree with it a lot, how much it like covers like the breadth of films it's covering. I give it credit for that. It well, so here's what I'd say. It's British. Although not every director on here is British. There is very, very few female directors here, and there are virtually no directors of... These are all Western, white male Western directors. Like, all of them. Like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't hear any of that. But. Oh, I said there was, there's virtually no female directors on here, and there's no directors of color on here either. I mean, there's like, I think there's one of each. And I, I think it's Beau I think it's Beau Travail, and I think Do the Right Thing is really far down on this list. Yeah, Do the Right. Where was Do the Right Thing? I mean, like way too far down. Like they should be ashamed of themselves. Too far down on this list. I think Do the Right Thing's in the top. Is Do the Right Thing even in the top hundred? Oh, I think so. Oh yeah, those those parts are are. Um, two female directors. Who's the other one besides Claire Denis? Um, Chantelle Ackerman. Oh, uh, oh, for the um, Delman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So two, two out of a hundred. No, for for sure that's that's bad. That is. And again, it's problem. It's 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 a problematic discussion because we're dealing with the whole history of film with this list. You know what I mean? And uh, like women have only been allowed to direct films in like any kind of serious way by the culture in the last like, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years. Also, also Getsu's on this list, which is problematic because that movie sucked. Yeah. I've always found Getsu very boring, but that's, you know. Yeah. No, you're right. But still, the fact that like. But that's a... material doesn't pop up on here or. I'm gonna be... anything or like even like a Kelly Riker film doesn't pop up. I mean, again, this is and it's old. It's what this was 2012, right? 12, yeah. So like the culture is different. I just wonder if this. I wonder if if when this if they make this list again in 2022, if this if it's going to be reflective of that. Like I wonder, does the Hurt Locker creep up onto this list somewhere? Um, I don't know. I I personally don't think it should because I don't like like love the Hurt Locker. But you're right. Does Wendy and Lucy crop up on this list? Does or Meeks? I was, I was thinking or Meeks, Meeks Cutoff cut or or yeah. Certain Women is like another movie that's got like a ton of um like has a ton of praise behind it. Does there's a number of movies that like you can say that you could put on this list? Does Sofia Coppola make an appearance here somewhere? Um, either for somewhere very, or you very, know, something very else. Influenced by In the Mood for Love. Yeah, it makes Coppola. it makes a lot of sense. I mean. Sofia Coppola has made amazing movies that we will talk about soon, and she's made Lost in Translation, which well, fucking sucks. Which, which which she was inspired for the ending by in the mood for love. Yeah, she if didn't. You are mad 
If you are mad by the comment that Tom <laughs> just made about Lost in Translation being a sucky movie, which you shouldn't be, because it was pretty boring. Did you like Lost in Translation? We've never had a Lost... Uh, have we had a Lost in Translation conversation? I don't know. But I thought it was forgettable. Forgettable, I mean, I forgettable is like a choice. I don't... It just it just made no impact on me whatsoever. And after I... I had like strong feelings on a lot of 2004 films. Um... And I just kind of sat there going, like, that's a movie that's there that's okay and I don't give a shit about. Yeah, I, I was so sad. Like my, my ultimate feelings was just, like, I just did not care. I was, like, I was on the, the trains of a lot of other films at that year. Yeah. No, I thought it was terrible. And I'm a uh, fan. I liked – and I, I give a lot of her movies – all the chances, and I like the Beguiled more than a lot of people like the Beguiled. But um, that's two thousand. Was that two thousand four? Was that two thousand three? I think two thousand three. Oh, then maybe I didn't have a lot. It was two thousand three. You're right. That's how forgettable that movie was for me. Then I mean, actually, I didn't give a shit about almost anything that year. I thought that year sucked. I mean, I wanted to have Bill. I wanted Bill Murray to have all the Oscars and all the accolades that he deserved, but I just didn't like that movie. I will. I will say this: that when that came out uh like when that happened like that year um i remember thinking like oh i want bill murray to win an oscar and then i i saw that and i was like i don't want bill murray to win an oscar for, for this <laughs> i but do remember that but I, it's, like, I see i'm so i mean we don't need to go into an oscar conversation here i don't think we need to ruin our like listeners day that badly or whenever they decide to listen to this, but I feel the same way that, like I do about Walking Phoenix winning. I don't. You're right. I don't want Walking Phoenix to win for this for the Joker, but I am happy that Walking Phoenix's Oscar like situation has been taken care of. Not the uh, not the Oscars matter anymore, but I'm glad that Walking Phoenix's Oscar is 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 stashed away safely, and he can go on doing whatever he wants to do. Yeah, really. Look at 2003. I just did not. I hated that year. That year was not. That great city of God. I loved obviously. Um, well, that was the milk year. What? No, milk was 2000. Oh, 2008. That was Mystic River yeah. year. Yeah, I like to make, yeah, like I was gonna say, Mystic River, um, City of God, and uh, like House of Sand of Fog. But I mean, which here. is a movie that I I didn't I liked House of Sand and Fog, but like it's it just was that's that's I think that was just a bad year. In movies, so I think ultimately oh, I saw yeah. Lost in Translation. And I just sat there. I sat there going like, "Okay, whatever, that's fine." It Mario, have that. I think that might be. What, I mean, we may have to do a separate podcast on the 2003 Oscars. Sean Penn wins. Fine. Johnny Depp for Pirates of the Caribbean. Ben Kingsley for House of Sand and Fog. Jude Law for Cold Mountain, and Bill Murray for Lost in Translation. Wait. Oh, are you shit! Are you shit talking Ben Kingsley being nominated for there? He's great in that movie. He's fine in it, but it's like an okay movie. But okay, yeah, it's it's a good, but it's he's it's, actually excellent in that movie, and the movie's okay. He's he's fine. He is not like sexy beast Ben Kingsley. No, he's not sexy beast Ben Kingsley. Going back to Jonathan Glazer. Um, Do you but, remember when you saw Sexy Beast? That movie blew my mind. If you remember where you saw Sexy Beast, you can tweet us at Film Pivotal. Or you can send us an email to uh, pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to 
pivotalfilm.com and you can see a list of the movies on our like top 100 list which we're working through slowly 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 and links to our episodes and how you can subscribe to our episodes and how to episodes and how you can get to our twitter account if you are so inclined to look at something like like that uh we are not making any kind of we do not have any coronavirus or pandemic news so i'm not sure why anyone would be listening looking at our twitter account we are not commenting on the michael jordan documentary so i'm not sure why anyone would be looking at our twitter account but it's there if you're interested i can do i can do a drunk play-by-play of what? I might do that this week. I might do that this week. I might do a drunk. I, there's not a lot going on, on my weekend. I might do a drunk uh, a play-by-play of something. Do it, Mario. Drunk, a drunk live stream of watching a movie. What movie? That was, I don't know. That was fun last week when I did that. Last week. Jesus Christ. That was, that was fun uh, sometime last year when I did that one of the report until I oh, got yeah. bored of it and, and went over to a friend's house. <laughs> I got like halfway through it. I was like, this movie sucks. The report was very fun. Because the, the most fun I had watching the report was looking at your comments on the report. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that with something. Uh, I'll do that with a... I'll do that with a... I might do that... I might watch a Woody Allen movie I haven't seen. Oh, no, don't I've do never that. Seen, I've never seen Crimes and Misdemeanors. You haven't? I might do that. No, I might do that with Crimes and Misdemeanors. See, that's not fair because though. Crimes and Misdemeanors is pretty good. No, no. Yeah, text me. Text me a suggestion of something on Criterion Channel to watch. That I think you should only supposed to be. you should only live tweet Adam Driver movies. Oh wait, no, Annette Benning movies. How many Annette Benning movies are on the Criterion Channel? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, we'll look it up. We'll, we'll, we'll finish it up. You can count we'll on us to screen. look that up, yeah, folks. And while we're looking that up. You can uh, watch a movie, drink a beer, and we will talk to you next week.